So it is your individual responsibility to make to leave any room that you walked into slightly better than how you found it. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm delighted to be joined today by James Elliott. James joined the British Army in 2006, deploying around the world, including to Afghanistan. After his own issues with mental health, James became a strength and conditioning coach at a National League rugby team where he learned the power of mentoring. He was then asked to establish the first ever British Army parachute jumping instructors platoon. And at RAF, Breeze Norton, James also attended several courses in mental health, becoming an instructor, and at that time also broke two Guinness World Records and feats of endurance in rugby. In 2018, James became a mental resilience coach for the British Army, where he helped to develop and deliver mental resilience training, including to special forces. And then in 2020, James left the Army to take his mental resilience training to a wider audience, including high-performing individuals and teams, such as the Paralympic rowing team. James is a best-selling author, author of the new book, Think Yourself Resilient, and he's currently finishing a master's of science in the field of war and psychiatry at King's College London. James, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate that. Thank you. My pleasure. So you're different from my usual guests in that you don't come from a recruiting background. So let me give some context and explain to you, as well as the audience, what attracted me to you and why I invited you on the show Go ahead. I do huge amounts of like studying into human behavior, which anyone who works in psychology or any form of 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 of, of, of sort of resilience on my brand w- would say that they all do that. But I I actually study it. You know, I actually academically study it so we can understand. And what I found is the application of the understanding of human behavior is so applicable in so many different worlds. So yes, I love doing the high performance and I love doing the one-on-one stuff. I have the high performing athletes and that, you know, I go into parliament and do talks in there. And um, um, I love that. I find it all really, really fulfilling and interesting. But what I found within the world of recruitment is because you're recruiting an individual to go and fulfill a, a role, human behavior then becomes a massive factor of that. What people find fulfilling, why they do what they do, how they do it, what leads us to the decisions that we make particularly then as a recruiter, not only has enabled those that I've worked with to bond better with the people that they're recruiting, but also helping them to find better slots for them. And as well, because as part of being a recruiter, is learning to understand and accept people for who they are, which actually can be a massive part of what I found of the recruitment process, particularly within um, um, jobs with high turnaround, recruiting people for central London jobs. It can have a high turnaround. So it's about understanding why people do what they do, because inevitably, when we don't understand why a person is doing something, we internalize it. We think it's because of us, something, a mistake that we have made. And then that makes it really hard to not take personally. So understanding human behavior is a massive part of being an effective recruiter. And so that's effectively what I've started learning and now teaching. Amazing. Yeah, 100% agree. Understanding human behavior. I mean, that's kind of a life skill, isn't it? Anyway, for dealing with people in any area, but in recruiting in particular, uh, it's it's maybe even amplified. Um, so, listen. What? First of all, I want to encourage everybody to look you up on LinkedIn, James Elliott. Um, your content is fantastic, and that's how I found you. Actually, I uh, I saw a post where you talked about running a half marathon while carrying a forty four pound Birkin, and mm. you did it in two hours ten minutes. And the reason that grabbed my attention is because I had literally. When I saw that post, I had just done a half marathon 
in around the same time, but I wasn't carrying a backpack with 44 pounds at the time. Right. Um, the next thing that grabbed my attention was your experience as a parachute instructor. And my nephew is a para with the British Army. So that kind of resonated for me. But the, it, what really capped it off was the fact that you're a mental resilience coach. And obviously our podcast is a resilient recruiter. So I just knew that I had to get you on the show. So um, could you, before we dive into understanding human behavior and talking about mental resilience, could you give a brief kind of, just talk briefly about your journey and how you got to this point where you're able to help other people with mental resilience? Yeah, thank you. Um, and just on the half marathon thing, first of all, my hamstrings were wrecked for ages afterwards, but um, I, I am my brand. So if I'm gonna talk about health behaviors, Pos um, um, positive patterns that we set in our life, I, I have to be that. I, can't, I refuse to be one of those. And there's many of them in the world of psychology and psychotherapy who talk a really good game, but don't walk a very good game at all. So yep. I have to do, you know, I've now got five world records. You know, I, I, I go and do lots of endurance events. I run marathons. I compete in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I do lots of gym stuff. Like I'm a big guy. I'm still playing bits of rugby. I am my brand. Um, so yeah, so it really started when I was, um, so kind of, kind of, I went to go work at Colchester Rugby Club, which is a national league rugby team. So this is 2015. Um, and I got, I got dragged there by someone who I refer to as my army dad. I love him very much. And he dragged me there and I became a strength conditioning coach. And I realized that you could get so much more out of an individual by speaking to them on a, on a human level, which might seem really bizarre, but you've got to bear in mind the context of which all instruction that I had received had come from, which was military, specifically airborne forces, do this or I'm going to thump you. You know, that type of coaching, he says, inverted commas. <laughs> Pain-assisted learning, they used to call it. So like, get it right or we're going to hurt you. And that's a motivator for good behavior. And it's not really. You just, you do it because you don't want to get thumped. Um, so I realized that actually engaging with people on a really human level, finding out what makes them tick was really powerful. We had a, a, a prop there, which is a, a very aggressive, strength-orientated position. And the guy there, his, na his name was Big Mitch. Big Mitch is like six foot five, like 20 stone. The guy is, the guy is built like a bus. And um, really like unbelievably strong guy. Could deadlift 300 kilograms, you know. And, and, and he would lose his confidence on pitch really quickly. You'd have this guy competing at this level who was this absolute monster of a man who would lose his confidence. So um, the coach used to say to me, no matter how much I scream in his face, grab him, hit him, he never gets angry. He never gets aggressive. And so my response to that was, then why do you keep doing it? Absolutely. If it hasn't, why, why, why are you still screaming? He's like, well, I don't know any other way. Um, so I would sit and talk with this guy. And basically, we worked out our own mantra, which was just simple, strength and confidence. So we went in the gym as a strength conditioning coach. And like I got him deadlifting, and he was deadlifting 300 kilograms. He was bench pressing like 180, 200. He was squatting like 300 kilograms. The guy was just a monster. Talk about like, and he'd say, you know, you're a big guy, he'd say to me, you're, you're strong. And I'm like, he's twice my size. And I said, if you're, ben you're benching 180, I'm benching 150. You're deadlifting 300. I'm deadlifting 250. You are stronger than me. And we talked about building that confidence from that strength. So completely different um, approach to anything he'd ever had before, which is people just engaging with him. He would lose his confidence. We talk about developing that strength and confidence. To him then going on to the pitch and the first game and like ripping the ball, like taking sweets from a baby, 
from like a, a guy who, who took the first ball, the contact into him, ripping the ball off of him and running half the pitch with, with most of their team hanging off of it. <laughs> and they're like, what, what happened there? What have you done to him? I said, I stopped shouting. So there's a different approach. I realize that there's different approaches. When you learn to understand who an individual is and understand them on a very individual level, you can then begin to actually make really positive changes in their life. Because if you're just going to scream and shout and get frustrated with people and get upset and get worked up and get emotionally distressed, they might do what you want, but they're only going to do what you want whilst you're in the room. So actually encouraging that change, motivating a person, like the reasons why people don't do something is because they don't believe in themselves. They don't believe in the thing or they don't believe in why you're telling them to do it. And so that's actually a massive part of this. So actually explaining to someone why we're doing something, what's, why it's good for them and how they can do it and getting them to believe in themselves enough to want to take those steps, that's so powerful. And he's, he, you know, he had several incredible seasons at Colchester. So that was really what inspired it for me. So I just really got into this coaching and mentoring and it was off the back of that. So a couple of seasons with Colchester that the Royal Air Force turned to um, the British Army and said, listen, you know, Afghanistan has come to an end for you guys now. Um, you want to return to conventional warfare, which is mass parachuting of troops, and we simply don't have the instructors to fulfill that need. And they went, all right, well, then we're going to send you some instructors. And because of the work I've been doing at Colchester Rover Club, they said, would you be interested? I went, yeah, I'd love to. So off I went. And uh, yeah, I absolutely like loved it because I was taking those skills of effective coaching and mentoring, which meant bonding with people on a really human level, meeting them where they are, meeting them as they presented themselves to me, understanding their fears because parachuting is an inherently terrifying thing particularly for a young man particularly for a man who's never been on an aircraft before the british army recruits young men from low socioeconomic demographics not because we're inherently tough but because we're vulnerable hmm. i was in and out of homelessness before i joined the army and so i was vulnerable like i the, my basic needs weren't being met if any human being is is making a decision on their life so they can have their basic needs met it's not really a decision it's a necessity hmm. And so that's what, and so these young guys were, were getting on, and most of them had never been spoken to before, by, but particularly like in a military context, because this is happening straight after training for a lot of the guys. Never been spoken to in a way like they're a human being. Like, mate, it's okay, calm down, just breathe. We're going to start again, okay? Let's get this kit sorted properly together. Once you know how to do it, you can do it without me. So let's work it out. And they've never had that before. Mm. And then you're getting a much better performance. Again, engaging with someone on a very human level allows you to bring out the very best of their human performance. And so there was huge difference there. Now, I'd really struggled with my mental health. That's one of the reasons why I, I, was, I was working at Colchester Rugby Club for a while, because I wasn't, you know, I was really obviously struggling. Lots of things in my personal life had fallen apart. I was in a really bad way. So then whilst I was at this parachute training school, I then started doing these instructor qualifications because I'd fallen in love with this coaching and mentoring, my idea was I wanted to be a coach. I was thinking about maybe being a um, like a, a PT, you know, going doing some some body coaching, that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but the more I looked into mental health, the more I fell in love with it. But I never had any real confidence with mental health. My mum used to say to me, the only way you're going to a university is to clean their toilets. So like I'd never had any academic faith in myself. So when I started doing these courses, they send like these these packs and they have like a reading list on it and I would just start sweating. And I, I hadn't, you know, I hadn't read a book since I was a teenager. I didn't read in the army. I didn't, didn't read books. It didn't interest me. So now all of a sudden I'm reading these books, you know, and it starts off the chimp paradox, I think was the first yeah. book that I, psychology book I read from. And I loved it. It's a good one. What a great book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like what an unbelievable guy, Professor Steve Peters, what a fantastic book. And I read the chimp paradox. Go, oh, this is 
you know, I'm really into this. And then I started reading more and more and more and learning more and more and doing sports psychology diplomas and doing mental health first aid courses. And yeah, really, really fell in love with it. And um, yeah, I then, I then got a, you know, um, got a, an email and it was the army headquarters talking about the mental health um, training. So yeah, we're changing our mental health training, da, 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 da. And I remember writing off to it and saying, you know, I think we do it wrong. I think we we work reactively. When it comes to mental health, we should be looking at things proactively. Um, I've struggled with my mental health and I was in a really, really, really bad way before doctors and nurses and friends got involved. But actually, we should be focusing on psychoeducation so that people can understand what's going on and why. And this is what I'm doing at the parachute training school. And they came and had a look at me at the parachute training school and realized that this coach in the mentoring where I was talking about anxiety and how to regulate it and visualization I said, well, that's actually really powerful. Come on. And literally, I think it was like two weeks later, I'm taken out of the parachute training school. I've gone to army headquarters and I'm at army headquarters and I'm become the second in command of British army mental resilience training. Amazing. And yeah, yeah. And just, we had to like help with the development, the designing, the furthering of this mental resilience training product so that we could deliver it. And yeah, it was amazing. James, what? And, sorry, go ahead. No, and it was just from there that everything else came out. You know, I delivered every day. I wound up delivering to a different unit, the key psychological skills of resilience and really, really enjoyed that and and loved that. And it just got to a point, you know, where I was ready to leave the military. You know, I built myself up to this point. I said, it's time for me to leave. And I left and I went and did some coaching with the Paralympic rowing team while still pursuing. So I finished my, um, my, my first qualification was degree level in um, effective coaching and mentoring. And then I did an advanced psychology off of, off of the back of that. And then um, I did my advanced CBT counseling mm. qualification off of that. And um, yeah, CBT I wound up doing being cognitive behavioral therapy, right? That's the one, how we think affects how we feel, affects how we behave. So challenge that cycle and you can challenge the outcomes. And um, yeah, and then I got invited to Oxford University for a friend to do a talk on how to communicate more effectively with vulnerable veterans. And um, I did that talk and they said, well, actually that was fantastic. Would you be interested in in um, coming to King's College and doing this master's degree course? And I said, listen, although I'm qualified now as a psychotherapist, you know, I'm not academically gifted you know i've never done this da, 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 da. and they went beg to differ huh. come give it a go and yeah i've got two thousand words left to write on my dissertation wow. and i finished my master's so yeah congratulations been, james that's fantastic uh, thanks yeah so hmm. it's been um yeah it's, it's been like an intense journey yeah. um but yeah so that that's a bit about me you know i fell in love with coaching and mentoring yeah. and it started off working in rugby which i've played most of my well yeah for the vast majority of my life yeah. and i love the game and so being able to then use um those skills has kind of really pulled me to where i am now okay awesome so let's talk about mental resilience what first of all what does that really mean and second of all what were the what are the kind of principles that you were teaching uh, in the British Army and then which you have further developed to your coaching and, and psychotherapy practice? Yeah, so the, the, the Army ones were very Army-focused. Okay. So that's great for that very specific military audience, mm -hmm. but there's not a huge amount of crossover between 
when you're getting really into the weeds of, say, um, the marksmanship principles and dropping targets at 300 meters and actually being able to be mindful, you can take that process of mindfulness and being focused on the present moment, but that whole using that as an analogy doesn't work for the vast majority of the population. Right. Uh, less than 5% of the UK's population have ever had any direct involvement with the UK military. So I am alienating 95% of my audience by focusing solely on that. So yep. the product of the British Army was, um, was, 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 was similar. I took out um, lots of chunks of it, um, huge chunks I took out, um, the, the mental rehearsal and positive imagery. I struggle immensely with mental rehearsal and positive imagery as concepts mm. because growing up in poverty, what I learned was you can't, you can't think positive out of poverty. Mm. You can't think positive out of a lot of your situations. What you can do is, as Theodore Roosevelt says, which is do what you can with what you have wherever you are. I, again, the British Army talk a lot about it is what it is. I, I resist it is what it is. Yeah. And instead I go, it is what I choose to make it. Yeah. What, are the, what are the steps? What are the 1% that I can do? People will sit there, their lives falling down around them, everything on fire and say, oh, it is what it is. I can't change it. Stop with that. It is what I choose to make it. What am I doing? How am I getting up? To keep, you know, in the British Army um, terminology of that, I would say a soldier who says it is what it is is a soldier who sits on his Bergen in a woodblock, cold, miserable, trying to light a cigarette, going, it is what it is. I hate being on the field. This is rubbish. I don't want to do it. But a soldier who says it is what I choose to make it, puts his Bergen down, gets his poncho out, gets out of his wet kit, puts, in, puts on his dry kit, starts cleaning his weapon system. That is a soldier saying, it is what I choose to make it. And so that's like what I changed. So I changed a lot of that. I took a huge amounts of it and changed it to make it more accessible for people outside of that. Awesome. Now, the key, key, con sorry, sorry. The key concept of, of resilience, exactly. I, would, I would always yeah. say, right, it's about turning thriving, sorry, surviving into thriving, okay. right? Charles Darwin identifies that the animal that sits at the top of its respective food chain is not the animal that is the most vicious or the strongest or the sharpest teeth. It's the one which adapts the best to change. Mm -hmm. Change quicker than everybody else. Adapt faster than everybody else. Find out what the people perceive to be my biggest vulnerabilities and how can I make that into my strengths. Mm. There are loads of great examples of that. Loads of great examples. The, 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 the really fascinating story of David and Goliath is a great example of what is my vulnerability and how can I make that my strength? How can the shepherd's boy with a slingshot defeat this huge warrior? Well, quite simply, because actually he used that to his advantage, his slingshot. He was incredibly accurate with it. Goliath was huge. Potentially, there's lots of evidence to suggest that he was blind. Lots of evidence to suggest that he had a tumor in his pituitary gland, which is why he was so big and blind and cumbersome. Mm -hmm. And that David was far more nimble and was incredibly accurate with a slingshot. His vulnerability was actually his strength. So I, read, I talk about this. What, sorry, I, on, James, please. I just wanted to, have you read um, Malcolm Gladwell's book, yes. David Goliath, where he talks about, yeah. he talks about this specific thing. And the fact which yeah. most people don't know is that a slingshot with a skilled, um, you know, someone who's skilled with that, it's like a bullet, basically. Mm. Uh, well, they recreated the experiment, yeah. the IDF did recently, and they recreated that experiment to show how fast was this stone coming out yeah. of this slinger. Because uh, about 100 years before that, the Spartan army had landed on the Sicilian island, and the Sicilians had absolutely slaughtered the Spartans using this, mm. using this technique. Yeah. And these stones, you know, he, 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 you would swing and, and, and let one go, and it was just under the speed of a bullet. Wow. And they said he was accurate within a hair's breadth. Yeah. So it was like there was a big guy who was blind with a huge sword, and you just sent a bloke out with a gun. Right. Yeah. Wow. So it's a great it's a great analogy. Um I interrupted you there though, James. Please. Uh 
you so mental resilience we're talking about how uh your ability to adapt to change is that kind of yeah so adaptability yeah. is a huge part of mental resilience it, it absolutely is and there's you know uh, um, um, that that ability to manage these pressures that inevitably come, like whether or not you try and avoid the pressures of life or not, is irrelevant because they're coming. Yeah, they're coming. We're, at some point, the inevitability of life is death, and at some point, we are all going to have to manage that people in our lives have have passed away. Mm. At some point, we're all going to have to manage the fact of financial struggles. At some point, we're all going to have to manage the fact of conflict in the workplace. At some point, we're all going to have to manage rejection. We all are. Yeah. Those are the inevitabilities of life. That is the inevitability of life that you will, at some point, struggle. Two things to take from that. First and foremostly, the only reason we know that there are bad days is because we know that there are good days. Like, we only feel great grief because we can also feel great joy. Mm -hmm. We can only feel great loneliness because we can also feel great connection. Mm. Like, these, these, these they exist on a spectrum, and because we know of one end of the spectrum, we know of the other end. Yeah. So understanding that these days happen. And secondly, learning how to manage and master those days. Because sometimes they're not days. Mm. Sometimes they're weeks. Yeah. Sometimes they're months. Sometimes they're years. Sometimes for two years, you have to go left foot, right foot, my body will follow. Mm. Sometimes you have to go to university. You have to go, you're doing, I was doing my master's degree and it just became left foot, right foot, my body will follow. Get yourself up, get dressed, get on that train, get off the train, get to uni make notes, go to the library, start the next essay, get back on the train, go home, get to the gym, come back, do more on your essay. That's it. Yeah. Left foot, right foot, my body will follow. What, what am I doing mm -hmm. and how am I doing it? How am I, how am I going to win? Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's what we have to do. Resilience is about that ability to manage stress, pressure, to bounce back from adversity and setback and to adapt to it and to change. And it's something, again, I think the army gets wrong because the army often confuses being steadfast with being resilient. Mm. No, we're doing it like this. Why? Because we have always done it like this. But that doesn't make it right. If we do things how we've always done things, then we'd still be fighting with axe and shield and spears and the Battle of Hastings mm. because that's what we've all, because that's what they've always done. You, don't, you leave no room for advancement and development there. Mm. Yeah, so it, it, there's a sense in which we've advanced technologically, but we haven't advanced psychologically as a species very much, right. right? Right, yeah. I mean, I cover that in the book. So about two and a half million years ago, when we first emerged from the jungles of Central Africa as these kind of human-based cavemen, mm -hmm. there's, there's that instinct to survive that exists within us, which is, you know, we want food, safety, security, sex, a tribe, and a position on that social hierarchy mm -hmm. that we want to either further or at all costs maintain. Mm -hmm. We want to maintain this position on a social hierarchy. Um, and so lots of our behaviors are driven by that. Mm. Biologically, it takes millions and millions and millions of years for, for evolution to happen. And yet as a society, we have evolved far quicker than we ever could biologically. Mm. You know, in the, in, in, in the early 1900s, people were still fighting for food. Yeah. And here we are now, and there's a Tesco's on every corner. And there's food everywhere and we live in great abundance and great comfort. And we're not running around throwing spears and starting fires. We're not. And yet in the lifespan of evolution, a blink ago, that's exactly what we were doing. And now we're living in such great comfort, increasingly isolating ourselves, which is incredibly distressing. Mm -hmm. And so we have this desired wire to, to survive. And what becomes really interesting is that the methods of which we create that survival come from what we experience. Mm -hmm. So mainly as children, what we witness our caregivers doing, 
our emotional memory bank is our hippocampus. And that forms the moment that we start, that we exit the womb, that starts forming the moment that we exit the womb. So what is displayed to us becomes a yardstick from which we measure everything else by. So how our parents showed romantic engagement with each other, that's what we believe romantic engagement is. How our parents argued and managed stress, that's what we believe argued managing stress. Incredibly neurotic primary caregivers, normally mothers, tend to create incredibly neurotic children. Mm. Fathers who communicate through violence tend to create sons that communicate through violence. Mm. There's a reason why we call it cycles of trauma because one person experiences a traumatic childhood and they then expose their children who expose their children who expose their children. So as a society, we are still wired to, we are going to maintain the status quo of familiarity because familiarity is survival. We look at our, our caregivers, our primary, secondary caregivers, normally our mother and father, but that's increasingly difficult in the Western world. But we look at those around us and say, well, if that's what they did to survive, that's what I need to do to survive. If you've ever stopped and found yourself thinking, my God, I'm turning into my mother, <laughs> yes. Like you, you're designed to do that because as cavemen, that would ensure survival. If we did what our, what our ancestors did, then that would ensure survival. That would ensure survival. Everything was based around survival. That's the role of our subconscious. And whenever we experience a stimuli that goes what we believe to be against our survival, our amygdala releases cortisol, orders the release of cortisol, which is our stress hormone, which activates the stress response. It's why we get stressed. And so that stress that will then either encourage us to get away from this thing or attack this thing and normally get away. Like fear will drive us away from far more success than failure ever will. And so, yeah, we, 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 we back out, we quit. The special forces, um, I went on special forces selection in 2013. They have this really interesting um, statistic, which is something like, and I'm sure I've got this number wrong, but it's something like 80% of people who are at the end of special forces selection pass. Huh. But the vast majority of people withdraw themselves. Right. So they might only have out of 150, 200 applicants, they might only have 10 people who pass. Yeah. But those were the 10 people who were still standing at the end. Yeah. That's they, true. Very rarely do they withdraw people, unless it's a medical reason yeah. or a safety reason. It's very rare that they withdraw people. People withdraw themselves all the time. We did the... Um, one of the events is a day, night, day. So you're carrying that, that, that Bergen. You went up and down mountains through the day. Then you go up and down mountains through the night. Then you go up and down mountains through the day again. On the next day after that, there were 40 people who left my selection. Mm. This went, I just don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. But there we go. So actually, like, uh, like we, will, we will trash our own dreams far more than failure ever will. Mm. And that's, that's such an interesting point because our amygdala, this caveman that sits in the center of everyone's head that fears rejection, that fears lack of security, that wants food and sex and a tribe often makes us withdraw from things that we, we, we should be doing because there's mainly it's that fear of failure, that fear of if, if we fail that we'll get rejected by our, by our peer group for failing and therefore that then motivates people to stop doing the thing altogether because that's a scary thought. Video interviewing has been part of mainstream recruitment for over a decade now, but have you figured it out yet? Video interviewing certainly looks good as part of your recruitment service. It gives you the appearance of being a cutting edge recruitment business owner on the front line of technology. But is it paying its way? Are you getting more new business, more repeat business because you're using video interviewing? Or is it starting to look more like a financial drain on your recruitment business? 
Our sponsor and trusted partner, iIntro, has a solution for this. Their video interviewing is just one part of a complete suite of recruitment tools, so you don't need to spend a fortune on yet another tech platform. Everything you need is included in one package. Additionally, they provide training for your recruitment firm to make sure you're using the technology to the best possible effect for your existing clients, as well as how to use it to attract new clients. If you're thinking of investing in video interviewing, don't take another step until you've requested your free demonstration from iIntro. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retain to book your free consultation. See for yourself how to use video interviewing to get a true return on your investment. That's recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Amazing. This is it's fascinating. I, I could talk about this stuff all day, James, and your, your knowledge of it is substantial. Um, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about mm. practical applications from a performance psychology point of view. And in particular, <clears throat> so everybody in the world experiences stress. And mm. um, in the context of our audience today, um, the stresses are, so people have if they work in a recruitment business, then they have sales targets. They have to deliver. Uh, they have mm -hmm. to hit deadlines. They've got uh, they're accountable to clients as well as to their mm -hmm. team and their employer to you know fill a certain number of jobs to meet certain sales targets to meet certain key performance indicators. Um, it's very demanding. It's 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 stressful. Um, so that's that's one level to it. The second level is. It's daily rejection. So whether that mm -hmm. is you're trying to interest a client in working with you uh, and and uh, you know utilizing your services, or you're trying to interest a candidate in a particular job opportunity, um, most of them are going to say no, right? But in both mm -hmm. cases, whether it's client or like development or candidate generation, you're hearing no a lot more than you're hearing yes. And uh, then the th the the third level to this is that um, it's very insecure in the sense that you, you're dealing with human beings and we're gonna talk about human behavior. You're dealing with human, beha uh, human beings who don't always do what they say or communicate mm. transparently. And they may, you, you think you have a deal and then, but you don't really. And you, so you, you're counting on a certain placement and therefore, the commission and the and the and the reward and also just the security and the and the confidence and the recognition and everything that's wrapped up in that accomplishment and then it the rug gets pulled out from underneath you and you uh end up missing your target when you thought that you were safe right that safety mm. thing in the uh, in Maslow's hierarchy you thought you were safe but then oh watch out you're not because something that you weren't expecting happens and you didn't you didn't predict um so that's the, within that context, James, and I'm sure there's so many parallels in, with every client you work with, but what are the sort of practical things that we must do as human beings in order to develop that mental resilience? Mm. Um, I think first and foremost, Lee, um, it's a really interesting point, um, but lots of, lots of people really buy into stoicism these days. I'm not actually a massive fan of, of stoicism. Like stoicism, like suppress your fear, just face it, charge head on into it. That's great. I mean, a lot of, say, for example, the Marcus Aurelius diaries and journals have 
been printed and people read them and quote Marcus Aurelius all the time, sort of arguing what, uh, about what a good man could be and become one. He wrote lots of like really interesting things. Um, uh, but like that was during the Germanic War. Like I dare say that a lot of the stoicism about suppressing your fear of death in battle is not necessarily applicable to that of a recruiter. So actually what we have to do is learn a better way of living our lives because emotional suppression is not the one. As Freud said, that any uh, 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 every uh, unexpressed or every unprocessed emotion will eventually manifest itself as a negative behavior. Mm-hmm. People who don't manage their emotional states lash out at people, become more stressed, mm-hmm. fail in their performance. You've got to learn to understand your emotions. So mm-hmm. psychoeducation is a massive part of what I do with people. Understanding why our brain is doing what it's doing and why it works the way that it works. I talk about having the rug pulled from underneath you and being devastated because a deal or some something hasn't gone through because the person says they've gone through for several reasons. Because your subconscious drive to be accepted by your peer group and you've got those numbers and those deadlines that, that you have to fill, that all of a sudden becomes a massive problem when uh, individuals who are going to assist you in filling those quotas so that you can meet the expectations of your tribal influence and your tribe leaders all of a sudden gets pulled out from underneath you. So there's that fear of rejection from your tribe because you haven't met your numbers. Um, and this person has told you that they can. So there's that there's that level of panic. There's also um, a level of worry because you might have felt like you've bonded with this person. Um, you've created an emotional bond with them and by them then not fulfilling the deal that they said, then that feels like personal rejection mm-hmm. and a rejection of you. And again, whenever we don't understand a human's behavior, we inevitably internalize it. So you think them not, doing what they say they're going to do is because you're not a good recruiter. Um, so there's there's lots to it. The first thing is to actually acknowledge how it is that you feel. Mm. Like you can't manage your emotions if you're refusing to accept them. They just express themselves in really negative ways. Consider emotional intelligence, self-awareness, and emotional control are two of you know several of the pillars of emotional intelligence. Understanding why you're feeling what you're feeling and what you can do about it is key. So the first thing I would say to understanding your emotional resilience is it's not saying, why do I feel this way? But why is my subconscious choosing for me to? Hmm. There's a conversation going on between your amygdala, the generator of fear, and your hippocampus, your emotional memory bank. So saying, because this person rejecting me is actually making me, you know, so this person not doing what they say, I feel like is a rejection of me. And that's making me panic because I don't, we don't like to be rejected as human beings because we want to be accepted as a tribe. Okay, cool. That's why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling. Hmm. That's what this is. This is a release of cortisol. This is this stress because they're rejecting me and I'm worried about what that means to my quota. Okay, stop, breathe. Because tell you now, being worried and being stressed is not going to make you a better recruiter. Absolutely. Being calm, being, it's being controlled. It's going to inhibit your performance, yeah. uh, if anything, right. yeah. Yeah, because an excess amount of cortisol suppresses our dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is our logic and reasoning part of our brain. Yeah. So we become far more illogical because logic and reason associate with our prefrontal cortex and our emotions with our subconscious and emotions are associated to survival yeah so you're the more stressed you become it's more of your fight or flight is being activated it's more we need to survive so the less capable you are of managing that rush of cortisol the least capable you are of making rational decisions the more irrational your decision making process becomes the more emotionally driven towards survival it becomes and that's not great as a recruiter, that's not great. Again, Marcus Aurelius had lots of great things to say about this, but you're not fighting in a Germanic war. I feel, I, just you, as a segue, I feel like I, I need to, I like Marcus Aurelius. I don't think mm. there's any author where I agree 100% with everything they say. What The biggest thing I took from Marcus Aurelius wasn't suppress your emotions, but more 
you can't, is more about control. You can't control what other people are going to do, what they're going to think about you. Um, so don't worry about it. Focus on the things you can control. I think that's the most powerful right. message I took from Marcus Aurelius. Right. It, 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 so, yeah. He's a great example, but there's, you know, there's lots of it like, you know, um, Epictetus yeah. and, 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 and other great users of it. I mean, I'm a bigger fan of Aristotle who would talk about understanding why you're feeling, why you're feeling. And he talks a lot about dynamis, which is the inherent uh, potential that lives within all of us. It's where we get the word dynamite from. Mm -hmm. Like there's an explosive potential in, in every single one of us. And, and actually understanding your potential and meeting that potential is, is key to fulfillment, yeah. which I love. Um, but the, the, the point you're absolutely right that we can't control other people when it comes to this, um, I often use the fable of, um, the frog and the scorpion. So a scorpion's walking through a jungle and he gets to a fast flowing river and he sees a frog and he says, excuse me, Mr. Frog, can I get on your back, please, and get a lift? And the frog says, no, of course not. You're a scorpion and you will sting me. And the scorpion says, no, I, I won't sting you. I promise I, I, I need to get across. And the frog goes, okay. And the scorpion gets on. They get halfway through the river and the scorpion stings him. And they both begin to drown. And the frog goes, ah, why did you do that? And the scorpion says, because I'm a scorpion. And I love that because that's fine. But how that applies to you as a recruiter is stop emotionally putting this scorpion on your back. The thing stop, is, though, stop I, expecting better. I am that frog every time. I'll always give someone the benefit Duh. of the doubt, right? And go, all right, on you go. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. But but yeah, but you're but you're saying on a psychological level, don't accept yeah. the scorpion on your back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's, it's entirely likely this person might sting me. Yeah. And this isn't about appro approaching the world with a negative perspective at all. You work in recruitment and quite often the recruit falls through. It doesn't work out. They don't fulfill. They don't do what they say they're going to do. It doesn't happen. Okay, but if you have attached a sense of self and identity to every single transaction that you make, every single phone call that you make, you're going to get hurt yeah. because rejection is an inevitable part of it. So you have to learn to be okay with it. So stop letting this scorpion of expectation on your back. Mm. It's often where expectation doesn't meet reality is where we see the most amount of emotional distress in that space between emotion, um, in that space between that expectation and reality. So bring them much closer. Let your expectations meet the reality of it. Like if a toddler stands up, the whole room holds its breath and they do a step and they do another step and they do a third step and then they fall on their bum and everyone goes, yay, and claps. But with that mentality, you would sit there and go, well, why didn't he do a backflip? <laughs> well, stop expecting backflips from toddlers. If you are recruiting someone and they don't have a great recruitment history, they don't necessarily give you a good vibe for how they're going to be, stop expecting them to do backflips. Back, stop expecting them to do backflips. Accept them entirely for who they are. See them for who they are. If you observe somebody for long enough, they'll tell you everything that you need to know about them. Le okay, this is interesting. I want to double click on that um, because... Very often, it's true, we almost, we we ignore maybe that gut feel or we hope and pray, you know, for the best uh, outcome mm -hmm. or we, 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 we're, we're blind to maybe some of the signals that, you know, someone probably wasn't going to take the job because we are, we want them so badly to accept the job, for example, but what, how can we start to see people as they truly are and be more to manage that expectation versus reality? Mm. Uh, emotional influence and biases play a huge role in this. It's really interesting to see someone who you can relate to and then all of a sudden you have a bias towards them. To think, oh, I really like them. I mean, like, uh, uh, there's so many like really fascinating experiments done on this. So people 
walking and wearing all different types of football shirts and instantly you're kinder to the person who's wearing the football shirt of the team that you support. Hmm. You give them the benefit of the doubt because you connected to them. So actually there's a huge amount of emotional bias that plays a role in all of the decision-making processes. And probably the most common and well-known version of that is pretty privilege. Yeah. People who are pretty and considered aesthetically good-looking are far less likely to be committed of a crime. Women are far less likely to consider to to receive a custodial sentence for a crime, even if the crime that they've committed is the exact same as their male counterpart. The male counterpart is far more likely to go to prison. The way that we perceive people and how we see them absolutely buys into a conscious and sometimes very unconscious bias. So if you actually remove your emotional influence, now That's, I use this example. How like, do you do that though? So, like, right. So what we used to do in primary school was you used to draw a timeline, mm-hmm. right? And you go whatever it was. Uh, Richard III loses the Battle of Bosworth Field, Henry takes over, starting of the Tudors, and then you do whatever it was, 1628, Elizabeth I, end of the Tudor era. And you draw that line, the timeline of what happens. You're not writing about emotional states, you're writing about Henry VIII, Anne Boleyn, um, uh, Catalina de Aragon, all of those like fantastic people throughout history. And you write about them in this Tudor period, this insane period of, of English history, and you write it out, and as a timeline. Learn to do that with people. To remove your emotional bias and actually just do like a timeline in your head. They called, they were late, they didn't do this, they didn't do that, they did that, did that, did that. Yeah, okay, they made me laugh and they're really fun to be around and they've got a really warm, charismatic personality. Okay, cool. But when I actually look objectively at their behaviors, there's a problem here mm. because we often see people how we want to see them, not as they are. Mm. We, we fill up, we fill in the blanks with what we want to see, what we want to believe, but it's often not true. People will show you who they are. And, and it's really interesting because um, 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 there is a great Marcus Aurelius quote on this, but it slipped me. But we'll use Batman instead. <laughs> it's not who you are. It's not who you are underneath, but what you do that defines you. Yes. Or Jane Austen, who says it's not in what a character does, but in what a, it's not in what a person does, but in rather what a person doesn't do that best reveals their character. So actually, when you learn to see people for as they are because of what they do, not because of what they say they'll do or not because of what they've done once, but because of what they do, patterns, people will show you who they are through the patterns of their behavior. When you learn to see people's patterns of their behavior, you then actually begin to see them far more clearly. Absolutely. Really, really interesting. Um, Why do you think people do um, unexpected things you know so take a really prevalent example in across society it's not just recruiting it's pretty much the norm now in in business and even socially is this idea of ghosting so like you're you have communication with someone and Mm. in your as far as you can tell it's moving forward it's a positive communication and then suddenly they break off all contact and it leaves people bewildered because they're like, like, if he didn't want the job, why didn't he just say so? Like, why didn't he just yeah, say why so? Why did that? You've asked the you've asked the right question. Yeah. You've asked the right question. That is the right question. If he didn't want it, why didn't he just say so? Now, if we don't understand why a person's doing something, we internalize it because then you go, "Oh my god, is it me?" Yeah. Now there are any manner of millions of millions of millions of different possibilities as to why that person then didn't. Um, message you, tell you, recruit, whatever. Millions of different reasons. Mm. I would say there's two things in this life that you are allowed to assume. First and foremost, that there is a bigger picture. Secondly, that you have no idea what that picture is. (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah. 
So there's a bigger picture. Yeah. Now, but the actual question, the actual thing is, but why didn't they just say? But why didn't they just say? Now, why do people ghost? The answer to that is, and it's, again, a scathing indictment of the human psyche, but the reason why people ghost is, it's easier. Yeah. It's just easier. I'm just going to stop replying. I just, I just don't care. Whether that's romantically, mm-hmm. and I've been there, I've just gone, I just don't care anymore. I'm just not, I don't care, I'm just going to go, see you later. But whether or not that's romantically, whether or not that's professionally, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's the easy option. Hey, and let's call a spade a spade, it's the coward's option. Yeah, like, let me know. You're right. I think it's actually the it's the their fear of rejection or confrontation or conflict or whatever. Like right. they they don't they're they don't want you to try and persuade them. They think like, okay, I could I could call James and tell him actually I've decided not to attend this interview, but then yeah. I'm letting him down. He's gonna tr- he's gonna say, oh come on, just go along and see how. And I don't want to. I don't even want to have that conversation. So I I'm just gonna not show up for the interview. Yeah, well, there's, there's a great theory of why men lie. And, and, and why men lie is because they're scared of your reaction to the truth. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Which, which in ghosting, you can obviously understand that like, actually, do you know what? Like I, I got offered a better deal yeah. and I took that. Mm-hmm. And then they're worried about A, being mean to you or B, or B how, and then B, how you're going to respond to that. Yeah. So instead they just say, oh, I'm just not going to speak to him anymore. Yeah. Which actually is worse. Because then if, as a recruiter, they said, well, do you know what? Actually, this recruitment firm offered me like better money and it's easier and it's closer and thanks very much. But I said, yes, it's nothing to do with you. And then you, okay, cool. Yeah. So it's nothing to do with me. So I'm no longer internalizing it. I'm not taking it personally. Yeah. It's belonging to them, which is a true of 99% of our interactions with the world. If we all see things differently, that hippocampus I talked about, that 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 our emotional memory bank and, and how we respond to the world that begins to form the moment that we're born. If mine has formed differently to yours and yours has formed differently to me, then we're going to perceive the world differently. Of course. So your choice of things that you like is different to my choice of things that I like. The things that stress you are not the things that stress me and the things that stress me are not the things that stress you. And so actually, we can learn then that if someone's rejection is only ever a reflection of their form, the formation of their hippocampus, it's nothing to do with us. It's nothing to do with us. It's it's how they do. One one person's comedian is another person's boredom. You know, so actually not taking these things on board and understanding that that individual is an expression of their individuality. And unfortunately, they've ghosted because they, they're worried about what the truth will do. But that worry of the truth will do, unless you have been a hyper-aggressive recruiter, is a reflection of them. Yeah. And their inability to manage those difficult conversations, which probably comes from a lack of positive, healthy exposure of conflict as a child, which means their mum and dad never like taught them how to have those difficult conversations. So as an adult, they don't know how to have that difficult conversation. So that's fine. Those neural patterns, that formation of the brain literally doesn't exist. And that element of emotional intelligence doesn't exist with a lot of people. Emotional intelligence is a difficult thing to learn and it takes a lot of time and effort. And most people will never have the time nor the inclination to do so. Okay, I'm really glad you brought that up because we're circling back to emotional intelligence. It seems like this is really the foundation of mental resilience. And so, and you've highlighted a a key point there, which is exactly what I was thinking is, okay, I understand and 100% agree that emotional intelligence is a huge... um, resource for me to be able to mm. uh, maintain a healthy uh, and resilient mindset and to perform at my best. How do I 
develop that emotional intelligence. Obviously, you can read mm -hmm. books and things, but you know, and and you're saying it's it's there's work involved. You have to apply yourself. You have to have the inclination and then spend the time to mm -hmm. to do it. But well, yeah. I mean, I consider that motivation to be part of emotional intelligence. Yeah. So the motivation to want to work on it is one of the pillars. So I would, I would break it into, into five, which is self-awareness. Okay. Lots of people lose their temper, lose their mind, get angry, and then have absolutely zero awareness that they've even done it. Mm. You know, those like complete, you're Michael Scott from American Office type characters. They just completely like any self-awareness. They have no idea what they're feeling or why they're doing what they're doing. They're just doing it. So that being self-aware first and foremost, and that starts with being able to listen to your body. Mm. Like your body, your subconscious is constantly talking to you. Tiny flushes of dopamine, serotonin, um, cortisol, and, and many, many other neurotransmitters and glucocorticoids will tell you how you are feeling all the time. Um, from when somebody walks in the room and you get the ick because they are walking and carrying themselves in a certain way that reminds you of a negative experience from your childhood to your subconscious having a release of cortisol which activates your central nervous system makes your stomach feel cold and makes your hair stand on end whenever they walk near you you go <laughs> oh i cannot that person makes my skin crawl yes there are lots of terms in the english language that we've got for our physiological responses to the world uh, makes my skin crawl i just saw red makes my blood boil all of these things your central nervous system your 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 gut instincts your your subconscious your emotional memory bank telling you what you do and don't like so being aware of that mm. being aware of when you're stressed how am i feeling checking in with yourself regularly breathing listening to your body and that means like if you want to listen to your body accurately removing other factors that affect stresses of the body so having things like positive health behaviors massively improves your ability of being self-aware mm. Because how can you listen to what your body is trying to tell you if your body is constantly stressed from the fact that you haven't exercised in six months? Mm. How can you listen to what your body is telling you if your body is stressed because you're dehydrated, because you've only been drinking coffee and Coca-Cola? Mm. So being able to listen to your body, being physically fit and healthy is a massive part of that. Mm. Secondly, then comes the emotional control mm -hmm. because emotions are based around feelings of our body. So if you can understand what your body is trying to tell you, you can understand the emotion it's trying to generate and be very granular with that emotion. Hmm. What is that emotion? What is my body trying to tell me? What do I actually feel and why? Hmm. Remember, as we said before, it's not a case of why am I feeling this way, but why is my subconscious choosing for me to? It's interesting with being very granular because that's something which we worked on with our kids actually. Uh, and yeah. and um, often we and I, I would include myself in this, we lack the vocabulary or the specificity to accurately label those emotions we're feeling. And so we tend to gen lump like, oh, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling upset, I'm feeling stressed, are very loose kind of ways of describing mm. something. Yeah, umbrella terms. Umbrella terms, exactly. Yeah. And so even just developing that, the language to be able to correctly identify the specific emotion that you are feeling so that you can then address it accordingly. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I'm feeling sad. Are you feeling sad when I'm feeling a bit rejected? Are you feeling rejected? Yeah, I'm feeling lonely. Mm. Oh, okay, well, I know what the remedy is for loneliness. That's connection. Mm. Right. So rather than saying I'm feeling sad, be really granular with what it is that you feel because you can find the remedy for that much quicker. Mm. So that emotional control absolutely comes down to um, um, your ability to to be really granular with those emotions and understand the source of them. Mm. And then we've got um, empathy. Empathy is a, 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 a massive part of, of emotional intelligence because it's so important. Again, everything that people do is a reflection of them. 
Every single attitude, behavior, and belief not only has a source, but it has a function. That's the hippocampus. That's what they learn. Very, very, very few people in the world wake up to be the bad guy. Every single human being that you meet justifies their behavior. Yeah. No matter, you know, and we see this throughout history, no matter how horrendous and awful and atrocious it is, very rarely do people do things because they know it's a bad thing to do and they're going to do it anyway. Of so course. Everyone's like, ish, a, yeah. in, in their own story, they're the hero and everyone else is a character in their story, right? Correct. Um, Correct. Look, I mean, I know it's like a, it's an extremity of an example for sure, but it, it does paint the picture. The Nuremberg trials. Mm. Right, you know, but we're the good guys. Mm. No, no, you haven't. Like you have been single-handedly, you as a group have been responsible for the death of more human beings than anyone else to date. No, 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 but we're justified in it because of this. It's not every single human being justifies their behavior. They're doing the very best that they can with the information that they've got. And the, the biggest indicator you've got that someone is doing something which is wrong and they kind of know that it's wrong, but they're doing it anyway is their justification for doing it. Remember, everyone will still have a justification is that I am doing this to them because they did this to me. Mm -hmm. So empathy, I, I think recruiters, no, no, I, I, that, you can't ever generalize, right? But uh, the, mm. the recruiters that I attract and work with are very empathetic individuals. But empathetic, empathy is a double-edged sword because it can lead to pain, right? Because and by, right, yeah. I, I never told you this, James. My dad's a psychiatrist. My mom is a psychiatric nurse who, and then became a counselor. Awesome. But my mom is overly empathetic to the point that she takes on board the pain of the mm. person who she's working that's with. Talent. Yeah. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so I think that's one that you can, you have to be careful with. Yeah. Whereas yeah. a lack of empathy, yeah. you're a psychopath, right? So it's like a right, yeah. spectrum. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's about being human. Yeah. Um, like if um, it's very, it's great, you know, to feel and care for the people that you work with and work for, of course it absolutely is but be very wary about what you take home. Mm. I can definitely relate to that. And, and particularly with your mom, you know, I've had clients who have been really, really struggling and they really, really struggle. So then I really, really struggle and it becomes very, very talented because mm. you really, really care. Um, but yeah, absolutely. So that empathy is a double-edged sword. You know, I would say, what's the difference between being nice and being kind? Being kind is being nice, but you have boundaries. Mm. And that's the difference. Like having those boundaries, mm -hmm is what is the difference between being kind because nice people get water all over. Mm. You're just going to get water all over. But kind people are um, are nice, but they have boundaries. No. So Interesting distinction. being empathetic. So yeah. these the, the, the five pillars, we've got emotional intelligence. We've yep. got, um, no, oh, sorry, uh, self-awareness. No, five, five pillars self -awareness. of yeah, self-awareness, uh, emotional yep. control. Emotional control. Empathy, uh, empathy. is number three. Right. Uh, Social awareness. Okay. I have a thing where you have to leave the room better. Sorry, you have to leave the room in a slightly better state than how you found it. Mm. Understanding the effect that you can have on other people is the biggest superpower that there is. Like if you can walk into a room and identify who is the most vulnerable person in this room and how am I making them feel safe? Mm. Like that that's superpowers. It's one of the things that um, has made me really fall in love with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, like you turn up and everyone is incredibly welcoming. Mm -hmm. And it's your, you know, the first question you ask for someone you've never rolled before with, how long have you been coming? Like, what grade are you? How do you feel? Then I say, all right, okay, cool. Well, listen then, you know, it's your third time here. I'm not, let's not go for submissions. Yes. Just just try and get past my guard. Just just come to me. Yeah. Just just try and pin me to the floor. Like, I'll just offer a bit of resistance. We'll talk you through some stuff. Like, let's do it together. Yeah. And that happened to me. And now, you know, guys are like, oh, you're a big guy. It's my third session. I'm like, don't worry. 
Like it's about understanding other people's needs and meeting them where they are. Mm. Understanding that, understanding the effect that you can have on any room. Any person can change the room for the better. You can walk in the room and make the room a better place. I love this, James. This, I think for me, is the biggest takeaway from our, from today's conversation. Leave the room slightly better. Any room you enter, leave it slightly better to when you, I, I actually, could you say it again? I want to make sure I get yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So it is your individual responsibility to make, to leave any room that you walked into slightly better than how you found love it. Love it. That is brilliant. I'm going to take that yeah. idea because, um, yeah, that's powerful. Thanks. Th thanks for sharing yeah, that. Yeah. And then number, You're welcome. number five. Motivation. Okay. There are, there are, I, I work with people who have a full understanding of those first four. Mm -hmm. I understand um, my emotions, why I have them. I understand other people, the empathy. I understand that I can leave the room better than how I found it. Mm -hmm. But do you know what? I, it's, it's, too, it's too painful for me to try. And the reason for that is pride. Mm. So pride, that ego, that desire to maintain a position on a social hierarchy will destroy more careers, more friendships, more relationships, more opportunities than anything else. Pride. Pride is the devil. Mm. Pride is the devil. Yeah. People will ruin their own lives because they are worried that admitting fault and admitting mistake and being challenged, they think that that challenges their, their perception of their position on a social hierarchy. They can't be wrong. They can't appear to have ever been wrong. Mm. They can't appear to ever struggle. And so for that reason, their pride prevents them from doing it, which is actually wherever there's pride, there's shame. Mm. So actually there's that shame. They feel that shame about ever being challenged or being wrong or ever having to say sorry. Mm. And so that motivation just doesn't exist. And those are the type of people that you have to accept them for who they are, but put them where they belong. Say more about that. So put them where they belong is emotionally put them where they belong. I'm not going to expect this person. I'm not going to expect this back foot from a toddler. I'm not going to expect this person to say sorry. I'm going to expect this person to be difficult. I'm going to expect this person to behave how this person has only ever shown me they are capable of behaving. I'm not going to generate a romanticized vision of this person where they're kind and warm and loving. I'm not going to imagine that because quite simply, that does not exist. I'm going to ex accept this person for who they are, which is this person filled with pride and filled with ego. That's fine but I'm not taking on board that emotionally. Mm. I'm not letting the scorpion get on my back. I give those people a wide berth, <laughs> James. Correct. Yeah, I, it's interesting because we, um, in our coaching program, we occasionally have to turn people down um, who other, in terms of their, you know, their capability, their, you know, success and so on, they seem on the surface to be a good fit for us. Um, I had a guy recently and I, if he's, I, I hope he's listening to this podcast and, and, um, he takes a positive away from it, but he wanted to join our coaching program. And, uh, he told me it was a really big biller. He'd built three and a half million dollars, uh, before he'd had a single placement of a million dollars, which is kind of like unheard of. Right. And yet during our conversation, he put me on hold five times to take other calls and um, he also, it's, so that was a huge red flag. Uh, and the second red flag was, uh, he said, look, I, I don't, when I was describing our program, because they get, you know, some group sessions with me. They also get one-to-ones with my colleague, Julie. They also get supported by uh, my uh, COO and fellow coach, Leanne. He said, Mark, I'm, only, I don't, I'm not interested. I don't know those people. I'm only wanting to work with you, right? And he completely dismissed the value that other perspectives and other 
uh, people on my team could bring. And I just told him, look, I don't think this is going to be a good fit um, mm -hmm. because I just don't want to be around people with that energy. Um, I want to be around people you know, who are humble despite being successful and are open to learning and are open to giving and sharing with others as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And you see this, you know, all the time. And actually, I think that, you know, we're going to move slightly into uh, this sociology of conversation. This is what it means to be an ally to people in society who are the um, struggling members of society is to see someone's negative behavior or comments towards them and say, all right, I'm not interested in working with that person. Yeah. No, 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 no. If you disrespect my friends or you disrespect my colleague or you disrespect them, then you disrespect me. Yeah. And I'm not happy with working with, with, with people. You know, like if you see someone being sexist, misogynistic, you see someone being homophobic or racist or whatever, say, nah, I'm, I will have nothing whatsoever to do with that person. And I see that all the time. And I, I see people, you know, people come to me for, for psychotherapy and, and, um, yeah, they just, just you know, they, they want, it's what I, I mean, it confuses me for why they would come to psychotherapy in the first place when they have no intention of changing. Sometimes people will just feed me their bias because they want me to side with them. Mm. They don't want to hear my opinion. They want to hear their opinion come out of my mouth. <laughs> and yeah, right. and, and when you challenge them on that, they, they really, really struggle. And it's all about that ego and that pride. It's almost like they want to have this, be able to say what my therapist says and say something that's going to, um, uh, reinforce that negative bias that they already have. So yeah, it's um, it's incredibly challenging, for sure. Um, people come uh, with a negative bias, with a negative perspective, and yeah, they bring that. En like you say, they bring that energy with them. They bring that with them, and absolutely not. Like I won't have anything to do with it, and it makes my skin crawl. And anything that feels like it's not for me is not for me. Absolutely, James. This has been. Awesome. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want uh, people to check out your book, um, Think Yourself Resilient, and yeah. uh, and also follow you on LinkedIn to learn more about your work, because I think what you're doing is um, much needed and uh, you're absolutely bringing a huge amount of value to the world. So thank you. Thank you so very much for having me. Thank you for reaching out and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you for the headset as well. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> Got sent a lovely headset. <laughs> Fantastic, James. All right. Have an awesome thank day. You. Speak again. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Take, Take care. care. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.